0: I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The word of the Lord.
1: Will you stand with me for our gospel reading? A reading from the book of John chapter 11, starting with verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's been a bad odor for he's been in there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone this morning. So glad that you're here. So we did a little different seating arrangement today. There's a little bit of a reason for that. I know we're maybe a bit more cozy than we typically are. Um, This week was one of those weeks, and this happens sometimes in church planting, where I got about Friday and realized that it Probably at that time, I thought about 90% of our congregation was not going to be here this morning, (laughs) and so I started kind of thinking, maybe we'd do a little bit more intimate kind of setting, a little closer today, and so that's uh, what we went ahead and did, which by the way, um, this church breaks all the formulas for church planting, okay, I'll tell you why. So they, they tell you certain Sundays that you know, people are more likely to come and then certain Sundays that people are less likely to come. And, uh, and so no, first week of November is supposed to be, like, in middle Tennessee, one of, like, the bigger Sundays, right? And so I was kind of surprised by this, but not surprised at this congregation because it always changes because then we'll have, like, a blizzard where nobody can get out of their house and everybody shows up. (laughs) So I've just, I've stopped. I've stopped that whole figuring all that out. But it is so great to be with you all today, especially on this All Saints Sunday. Um, It's an exciting day in the church calendar. It was, uh, like I said earlier, All Saints Day was officially November 1st, okay? Uh, But it's often observed the following Sunday, which is what we're doing today. And again, it's one of the principal feasts in the church calendar. So it's one of the central things the church calendar revolves around. It is a day where we honor those who have gone before us, those who we call saints. Um, This day is a reminder that we do not walk the journey of faith alone. The Christian faith is not just a steps to a certain kind of life. Um, It's not just an individual religious experience. It may contain some of those things at times, but it's a bigger story that we're part of and that we don't walk in as individuals, we walk in together, in community together. Um, This way of viewing faith and the world, I think it pushes back on some of our temptations in our culture. Uh, In 21st century American society, we are first individualists we often think about ourselves as individuals first. Our faith is something that I own, that I have to grapple with, that I have to figure out, that I have to experience. And today, All Saints Day, we're reminded that we are simply part of an ongoing and unfolding narrative that we get to participate in. And it is a narrative of God's faithfulness to his people over and over again. Now, just a little bit of history. All Saints Day is really part of like three celebrations in three days in the church calendar, okay? So the day before is All Hallows' Eve, which we have called Halloween, and that in our culture has become the big one, right? That's the one that everybody kind of celebrates ahead of time. Now, this one has a complicated history, okay? Okay. There's scholars debate about, well, was this like a Druid holiday that the church kind of tried to redeem and kind of wrap up? Was this originally in the church and then it was taken? Did it revolve more around kind of the calendar of like the moon and the sun kind of cycle? And so all different traditions have done things different ways. Well, all I can speak to today, the only thing I can really ever speak to is how the church has thought about Hallow's Eve. Um, And this is really, in in the earliest church, it was a day of reminding each other that the forces of evil are limited, that the forces of evil only have another day before light has come, right? So what the church would often do is they dress up in silly costumes about evil, to mock evil (laughs) and to recognize that light is coming the next day. Okay, so that's kind of where that came from. Think what you want about all of that; it's totally fine. But uh, that's often what would happen. A new day has dawned in Christ, and so evil kind of just has one more day where we recognize it's over. Um, The day after, then, so you have All Hallows Eve, then you have All Saints Day, and then the day after is sometimes commemorated as All Souls Day, and this is particularly commemorating the dead. Now. I tend to agree with some scholars, especially like N.T. Wright, to tend to think that All Souls Day was was more of an add-on holiday and it's not always really helpful for us. Um, And here's the reason why. All Souls Day is this day that kind of has this idea of purgatory behind it. And it was um, kind of brought up in the Middle Ages to recognize people who their loved ones had died. And and it was an odd holiday because All Saints Day, we celebrate resurrection and future hope. And then All Souls Day was always a very dark, um, kind, of mis- kind of mysterious day. And so I think that All Saints Day kind of does it for us. <laughs> I don't think we need another additional holiday, but that's a digression here. But every, if you look at every culture really throughout history, every culture has at least one day of remembering those who have gone before, remembering the dead. So if you look at that, almost every culture, we, we still long, there's something in us that longs to be connected with those who have died with those who have gone before. We want that. Ashley and I were watching a show, a comedy the other day, and one of the central lines centered around a uh, a fortune teller. And I, I saw this and I kinda went, I forgot that was a thing. Okay, like I just don't think about that very often, but in contemporary society, like it still exists. Like you drive down the road and you see fortune tellers and I actually looked it up and it's still like a big business. Like people go to these fortune tellers If and I'm not mocking anyone, but but that I was just surprised, I was shocked by that. But I think some of that is this desire that we have to go, how do we connect? We don't know how to connect with a story of those who have died, of those who have gone before. We want to, we feel a longing to, but what does that actually mean? We get a small glimpse of this, no, though not thoroughly Orthodox Christian, in a, a recent uh, Pixar film, Coco. I don't know if anybody saw this film. It's a beautiful film, but but it highlighted the Dia de los Muertos in uh, Mexican culture, looking at this, this um uh, this idea of remembering those who have gone before and even the connection in that film they play around with poetically with the division between this life and the next life. And then we see so many different sh- shows now about the paranormal and about contact with the paranormals, all these kind of things. Now, there are obviously more and less Christian ways of talking about death, okay? There are lots of different ways that we can. And so my purpose today is not to condemn certain things or endorse certain things, But instead, I want us to see that our culture, on some level, we all have some longing for connectedness. We long for something beyond. We long for connection with those other stories beyond us and those who have gone before. We know there's a bigger story going on. We know there should be connection, but we don't, as we've done in all these weird ways, we don't know what that connection looks like. Well, as the Christian faith, the Orthodox Christian faith has affirmed, that there is a connection with the church who have gone, who has gone before. Scripture calls it the great cloud of witnesses, that they're cheering us on, that they're rooting for us, that somehow they're participating in some way in our life now. And yet in the Christian faith, All Saints Day is not just fond remembrance, and it's not superstition, and it's not just a general sense of connectedness. It is attached to a great hope, the hope of the future resurrection of all of God's people. That's the hope it's connected to. That is our hope. There's this great hymn, this old hymn called For All the Saints. And I want you to just listen to these words here. For all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia, alleluia. Thou wast their rock, their fortress and their might. Thou, Lord, their captain in the well-fought fight. Thou in the darkness drear, their one true light. Alleluia, alleluia. O blessed communion, fellowship divine, we feebly struggle, they in glory shine. Yet all are one in thee, for all are thine. Alleluia, alleluia. And when the strife is fierce, the warfare long. Steals on the ear, the distant trumpet song, triumph song. And hearts are brave again and arms are strong. Alleluia, alleluia. And this is my favorite one. But when there breaks a more glorious day, the saints triumphant rise in bright array, the king of glory passes on his way. Alleluia, alleluia. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast through gates of pearl streams in the countless host, in praise of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia, alleluia. I love this because there is this hope that resurrection is what we look towards. Resurrection for the church that has gone before, the future resurrection, the world made right for us. So who are the saints? We need to be clear about this. When we talk about the saints, we're talking about all baptized believers, okay? Some traditions don't define sainthood that way, but we believe that all baptized believers are considered the saints. All those in Christ in the present, those who have gone before, all those indwelt by the spirit here and there, these are the saints, okay? Different branches of the church commemorate specific people who are often called saints. I think that is confusing. But one way to think about that is simply that this is a way of identifying them specifically for their example that we can follow, okay? So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But but when we talk about saints today, we're talking about all baptized believers. So where are they right now? Where are the saints? Well, the saints who came before us, they rest today. They're in rest. The church um, was often called the church triumphant, those who have gone before, whereas the church here was called the church militant and is called the church militant, which is such an odd phrase, I think, to us to think of that we're the militant church, but it's, it just means that we're in the everyday struggle, in the everyday fight. So the church triumphant has gone before and then the church militant. And the church triumphant is resting right now. There's a crude illustration that a um, guy named John Polkinghorne said this. He said, when someone who is in Christ dies, it's like God uploads our software onto his hardware until he gives us new hardware to run that software. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't really, does it? (laughs) I'm gonna explain that again, okay? So we think about like, so we have bodies now, right? And so if you think about like, we have hardware that God has given us. When somebody dies, right? Their software is run on his hardware until the resurrection, when we are given new bodies, we're given new hardware, right? To run that software. Think about it a little bit, it'll be good. The saints are resting in the arms of Jesus. They are with him, but, and this is important and this is strange for us sometimes, that rest is not the end. It's not the final story or the final chapter, okay? It's not the end of the story. In Western society, we've been taught this idea of kind of an immortal soul, that our body is kind of just a shell, but we have something else, kind of an immortal soul that will last forever. And there's something in that that's right, but but that concept comes more from Greek philosophy than from Christianity. In the Christian faith, Life is inherently embodied. Physical bodies matter, they're important. We are meant to be physical creatures. And there will come a day when resurrection will occur for all of God's people. Sometimes when we talk about what happens when we die, I'm afraid that we've forgotten the most important thing and that's the source of Christian hope, that one day there will be resurrection. That physicality is not over when we die but there will be a new creation, a new physicality that God is making. So we can't think about death as escape, as if we're with Jesus, that's where everyone goes, that's the end of the story. No, a new heaven and a new earth are coming. The biblical narrative is not about escape from the physical, but it's about renewal, resurrection, and remaking of our bodies in this physical world. Another question that people have about saints, is uh, prayer to the saints, this practice of prayer to the saints. It's an interesting practice. It's um, mostly in the Roman Catholic Church. We see it sometimes in other traditions. And here we're on a little bit of shaky ground. We don't have real firm um, ideas and doctrines about what this looks like. And Protestants don't affirm a specific form of prayer to the saints. However, as Protestants, we need to be careful not to stereotype other traditions and other perspectives, okay, and much less demonize them. I've met so many problems, pro- Protestants, excuse me, Protestants are not problems, but met so many Protestants, sometimes we can be, but so can everybody. anyway, um, so many Protestants who, whenever we talk about Roman Catholicism or Catholics, their biggest problem is, oh, I just can never pray to the saints. I can never pray to the saints. And then it's a way of just dismissing a whole tradition, okay. Um, and it's true that there are some traditions who have delved into a deep superstition when it comes to prayer to the saints, okay? And we have to guard ourselves from this. Protestants are often quick to point out that as the book of Hebrews says, we don't need another mediator other than Jesus Christ. We don't need a go-between to pray to God. Christ is that for us, okay? So we don't have to pray to somebody else and kind of get around Jesus to go, no, we don't do that. However, a lot of us don't ever blink an eye whenever we have a prayer need and we go to our friend in our community and say, will you pray for me? We don't don't mind that. Like, that seems fine. Well, this tradition in its healthiest form is really a sense of that. It's asking part of the communion of the saints, part of the community to just pray on my behalf. Okay, That's, that's what's going on. And part of that is, the reason why we get kind of uncomfortable about that is we tend to think that there is this really strong concrete wall between this life and the next life. But the Bible is not really as concrete about that as we are. <laughs> we can't fully see all of how that plays out, but it's not quite as concrete as we think it is. The prayer of the saints and its healthiest, prayer to the saints in its healthiest form is simply a request for a member of the family to pray for us. I'm not advocating for this, okay? I'm just making sure we're aware of what we're talking about when we talk about this. So we're not stereotyping and demonizing traditions we don't understand. All right, I wanna jump today into our scriptures that we've, we've read here. The first one is Isaiah 25, six through nine. And it was the one that Ellen read. It's this incredibly beautiful passage about God's promised future. And it centers on a meal, okay? a feast of rich food and well-aged wines. And this passage is written in the context of Israel who had experienced a lot of rough stuff. They'd experienced invasion and defeat. They had lost a bunch of people in war. They had been thoroughly embarrassed. They were a people of pain who had experienced conquering. And these are the people, Isaiah says, for whom the feast will be prepared. The people who have come on the losing end of life the people who have been embarrassed, the people who are ashamed. Isaiah says the best wine and food will be prepared for them. And on this mountain, the text says, on this place of God's temple, this place of God's presence, he will destroy the shroud that is cast over all the peoples. The reason why I love this is, this reminds us that not only of the places of defeat in our world, that God will conquer sin and death, that God will conquer those enemies, but also the places of deep embarrassment, the places of deep shame, the places where we've tried to hide our failures, those shrouds that we've put over ourselves to create a new identity because of the shame that we feel. This passage speaks of dealing with that as well, those things that make us feel like the scum of the earth, right? I don't know about you, but I, I have a litany of those things in my life, <laughs> that I think back on and I go, man, oh, they make me cringe every time I think about it. I will be a little bit vulnerable with you today. Um, When I was 12, I was in a church, very large church, and the youth group was very large. And I I already kind of stood out in our youth group because I was kind of the only white kid in the group, and I was very geeky, very dorky kid as well. And I sat on the front row of youth group every week with my Bible, was just ready to learn and ready to soak everything in. And, and I had talked with the music leader before about singing in the choir one day or singing in the, the group one day. I was just so excited about that. And I remember that the worship leader was leading and, and all these things. And then all of a sudden in the middle of it, I see her and she starts doing this motion, just this motion right? Like with her hand kind of moving this motion. And I think, I think she's pointing at me and calling me up to sing with the group. Okay. Right. So I st- you can already feel this <laughs> cringe. So I just kind of start walking up to the front and I stand right there. And of course, you know, her hand motions change all of a sudden. And she goes, no, 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 no. Right. Something about that moment, maybe you hear it and you go, oh, that's not that big a deal. But for me in that moment, that was paralyzing. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And it's a moment I go back to. And whenever we think about this shroud, I think about that moment of embarrassment that I thought of myself higher than other people thought of me. And oh, how embarrassing that was, right? Um, out of risk of oversharing today, <laughs> there was another moment um, in high school where I had broken up with a girlfriend. She'd broken up with me, actually. And, uh, and she had a party at her house. That that evening, right after we broke up with all of our friends that I was not invited to, okay? And I'm stirring and I'm seething and I'm upset and I'm frustrated. And so I'm going to that party, right? Showing up at that party and it's a pool party, okay? And I didn't bring my swimsuit with me, but I'm gonna have a good time. So I jump in the pool with all my clothes on, right? To like, just to participate and have fun and show everybody I'm okay, which actually did the opposite of what I was trying to do, right? But I think back on that moment and I just cringe. I remember these moments. And maybe, I hope in sharing that today is going, maybe there's a few of those moments that you've had in your life that you just go, oh. Now you guys are all good, right? No, you don't have any of those. But I think those things form us in some way. I think they do. I think those tapes and those patterns, they kind of shape the kind of person who we think we are in our darkest moments. What I think this passage says is not only have I forgiven your sin, not only have I dealt with the enemies, but those false things that you've said about yourself, those things you've hid behind, I dealt with that too, right? All right. And then it says, uh, Notice this is not only undone for Israel, but undone for all the nations of the world. The Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Not only is death undone, the shroud of that, that hiding is undone. Grief is also undone. Yes, Lord. And that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in this salvation. All saints is not just about people. It's not just about individuals that have gone before us and recognizing their life and going, yeah, we wanna be like Mother Teresa. We wanna be like this person. We wanna be like that person. It is primarily, and the thing that keeps us away from superstition or just fond remembrance, all saints is about the God who called and gathered those people the God who brought that community together and sustained that community. And that's what, who this feast is for that we look to. We are part of a community gathered by God's faithfulness in the past, his reality in the present and his new world in the age to come. That leads us to our gospel text today. Jesus's friend, Lazarus, has just died. And this is an odd story in so many ways. And if you heard it growing up, maybe you have become numb to it. But the first thing we need to look at here is, the finality of death. Um, In the minds of everyone Jesus interacts with here, they think, okay, Lazarus has died, death is the end, so that's the final word, it's over. Um, There's nothing more after death. Now, Jews at this time believed in a future resurrection. They did, but they believed that the resurrection would come at the end of all things for all of God's people. That's the only time that resurrection will happen. And that's what in the previous section, Lazarus's sister, Martha says to Jesus. So Jesus tells her, Martha, you're gonna see your brother again. She says, well, I know I'm gonna see him again in the resurrection. I I know that that's gonna happen. Martha believed in the future resurrection. He believed in the day when all of God's people would rise. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he says to her, do you believe this? Do you believe the resurrection has come in me? So Jesus is saying to Martha, this future day that you hope for and you long for and you live for, this future day that Isaiah talked about that we just read about, where wrongs are made right, Jesus says, I am that future day. And I've come now, here and now. You don't need to just look to a future day. You need to look to me. You can actually see that this passage is a protest against Jesus. In fact, almost all of John's gospel is a protest against Jesus. Jesus, the narrative is. In our passage today, Mary, Mary actually echoes what Martha says and says to Jesus, where were you? If you would have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. My brother wouldn't have died. I wonder if you've ever asked that question before. God, where were you? It's the question I think that all of us ask God in times of suffering and loss. Where were you when this happened? Where were you? And then there's a second protest. So the first one is, where were you? The second one comes from the crowd. And they say, this is the guy who healed so many people. He opened blind eyes, they're baffled. He opened blind eyes of those who were around him. Why couldn't he heal Lazarus? From John one, we see that Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. And not only did his own people not receive him, they rejected him. And we see that all the way through John's gospel, all the way to the cross, where this protest against Jesus actually turns to violence. And in the midst of the protest, Jesus does something significant. Notice that in their doubts and in their questions and in their, where were you, Jesus? And you should have done this and you should have been here and couldn't you have done this because you healed all these other people? That Jesus doesn't silence their questions. Notice that. He doesn't say, shut up, Mary. You don't know what you're talking about. No. In fact, after that he says, where have you laid him? Where have you buried him? And the crowd says this, says, come and see. Well, if you're familiar with John's gospel, come and see is a really common thing that's said. Um, So Jesus is asked in John one, the disciples ask him where he's staying. And he says, come and see where I'm staying. When Philip tells Nathanael to follow Jesus, Nathaniel says, he's from Nazareth. And Philip says, could anything good come from Nazareth? Oh, excuse me, Nathaniel says, can anything good come from there? And Philip replies, well, come and see. In John 4, when Jesus reveals himself to the woman at the well, in the midst of her shame and embarrassment, she runs then to tell the Samaritans about him and she says, come and see. So there's this common thing whenever Jesus works that there's a sense of come and see. It's a common response to doubt in John's gospel, but it's not an argument. It's an invitation. Jesus doesn't invalidate their questions and feelings. He invites them to say, Jesus, come and see. He stands with their questions and he points them to something else. He stands in solidarity with their questions. Mary says, or the crowd says, come and see. They are struggling, they are grieving but this come and see stands as a line of witnesses to who God is. Jesus says, take me to him. Take me to the point of your pain. Take me to the point of your struggle. Take me to the point of darkness. Take me to where it hurts the most. In the midst of pain, God doesn't silence us. He invites us to show him where it hurts, to show him the pain. Sometimes we say that when we go through difficult times, we say, I would just wish I had all the answers for this. I wish I knew why. But I don't think that's what we really want. I think if somebody sat down with us and explained to us all the mysteries of the universe, I don't think we'd then go, okay, I'm good. No, I think we still have that pain. We still have that struggle. We don't want that. We want somebody to sit with us. Jesus doesn't explain it all away. He doesn't say, well, Mary, here's the deal. So here's how the world worked and why Lazarus needed to die. And here's what's all this. No, he doesn't explain. He weeps. He cries. He stands in solidarity with the grief of his loved ones. This pain is my pain too, Jesus is saying. He carries our pain with us. He steps into their grief and this is where we have the shortest verse in the Bible. It was a trivia question we had to learn in children's church of what is the shortest thing in the Bible, but it's way more than a trivia question. Jesus says, or the passage says, Jesus wept. Two verses, John eleven thirty five. Jesus stepped into our pain. He steps into human grief and pain and mourning. But that's not the end of the story, of course. Martha enters the scene again and Jesus looks at the grave and he says, take away the stone. Martha's concerned about the smell, okay? She's like, tropical weather? Four days, body's been sitting there. Jesus, do you realize that this is not going to smell good? We have guests here. Everyone knows what this means. It's almost like Jesus is saying, you must be joking, Jesus. But again, he doesn't say, shut up, Martha. You don't know what you're talking about. He doesn't silence her doubt. He simply says, Martha, remember the promise. Remember the promise that I've given you. Remember that you will see the glory. So you notice two things, and this is a pattern for Jesus, solidarity and promise, solidarity and promise. He steps into our grief. He steps into our pain. He fully experiences it with us. And then he also says, there is a promise beyond this. There is a way to move forward in this. There is beauty on the other side of this fully present and fully hopeful at the same time. And then Jesus points them somewhere. With the sound of his voice in the same way God created by speaking in Genesis, new creation comes about by speaking. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Jesus calls out of death. Jesus is the one who is resurrection. In him, death has died. We see here with Lazarus a foretaste Jesus is not just a healer or a miracle worker. He is the one who undoes death itself. And I think this process of solidarity and promise is the call of the Christian community, that we are a people and have been a people throughout the ages of solidarity who don't silence the protests We don't silence the hurts and say, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me explain to you how the world works. No, we're a people of solidarity with the world's grief and pain. This is evident for for me a lot of times when I tell people that I'm a pastor. When people ask what you do for a living, and I say a pastor, there's so many different responses that I get, right? Um, a lot of times, they're not overwhelmingly positive. Some people get really uncomfortable <laughs> when you say that. Some people, I saw some chart one time that was like, what do people say when, when you say you're a pastor? It was like this pie chart. And like a portion of it was uh, people say what church they go to. And a portion of, of it is people say, oh, that's nice. That's fine. A portion of it, people get mad. And then 90% of the chart is people stop cussing. Right? <laughs> And, and sometimes that's true. But I get to hear a lot of stories and some of the stories are painful. And people say, yeah, I, I went to church for a while and then I had this bad thing happen. And I have the opportunity there. At that point, I could go, oh, well, you know, not all Christians are like that, right? And you know, like we're, we're way better than all of those Christians that you've had. And let me tell you why Jesus is the right way and why you need to get saved right now, right? I could do that. But what happens when we go, I am so sorry, <laughs> I'm so sorry for that pain that you experienced. That probably really, really hurt. I think that's who we're called to be. Defensiveness is not helpful in those situations. Unfortunately, we live in a really defensive time, and I think Christians get really defensive right now. We feel the need to prove ourselves or defend ourselves or to fight for something. But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't defend himself, he weeps. What if the church were those who weep with the oppressed? even those who have been oppressed at the hand of the church. Today, we stand and we weep with the people of Pittsburgh and Tree of Life Synagogue. We grieve with those who have suffered of um, oppression and marginalization. Anti-Semitism has a horrible and awful history in our country and is often perpetrated by Christian people, unfortunately but we stand in solidarity with the marginalized and the oppressed and those who have been talked down to. And in that solidarity, we trust. We see there is something out of this. There's something new that will show itself. And we have to be careful. It's not that something, God's gonna do something because of this. It's not that this thing happened in order for this good thing to happen. No, 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 no. It's even in the midst of this, in the midst of this brokenness, and in spite all of this, God is at work. Rowan Williams says this, saints are very definitely not people who have perfect explanations for everything that happens. Saints may have their failings, but they're not that annoying. Saints are people who don't silence us, but let us speak out of what is most real to us, even if it's painful, even if it's challenging. A saint is somebody who says to you, you have God's permission to be yourself, Even if that means pouring out the anger, misery, guilt, confusion. And a saint is somebody who says, let me come with you to where it hurts. A saint is someone who says, trust and you will see what you never imagined. Because the saints in the church are above all the people who give us hope. The people who show us that things can be different. The humanity doesn't have to work in a sort of cyclical, miserable reworking of resentment, unhappiness, and selfishness. Saints break that open and they tell us, trust God. And God alone knows what you will see in this world and what you will see of him. That points us to the very end of our story. Like literally, like one chapter away from the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 that we read today. We see all the things that Isaiah prophesied, the signposts that we witnessed at Lazarus and his resurrection and was inaugurated with Jesus. We see this picture coming true in Revelation 21, that there's a new heavens and a new earth, that the old has passed away, that there's no longer any sea. And you remember that we've talked about this before, that whenever in the Bible you read sea, you're supposed to read chaotic murky stuff like stuff that doesn't really make sense. The seas in the ancient world were this like chaotic, murky thing that nobody knew exactly what would come out of the seas. The scriptures constantly remind us over and over again that God is Lord even of the seas, even of the chaos. Yahweh creates out of seas, Yahweh parts seas, Yahweh conquers the monsters that come out of the seas, Jesus calms the seas, Jesus walks on the seas, And in today, this image of God's new world, it says there is no longer anything murky or dark or chaotic in God's new world. It's made right. On top of all of that, it says God lives with his people. And Revelation quotes the Isaiah passage. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. We remember the saints today, not because they're perfect, We don't idealize the saints or idolize them, especially in ways that are not helpful. All of our great heroes had flaws. Peter was often impulsive. Paul was stubborn. Augustine wrestled with lust throughout much of his life. Francis may have been really overzealous at times. John Wesley was not a great husband. Um, MLK had family issues. Billy Graham had a Nixon problem. Teresa wrestled with doubt her entire life. We don't look to the saints because they're perfect. They have it all figured out. We look to them because God used in the midst of their brokenness, their struggles, and their pain, he used them. He sat with them in the midst of it. He weeped with them and he weeps with us when we grieve, when we doubt, and even when we protest him, he sits with us. And in their lives, we saw God shine through. He is the God of resurrection. In our struggles, he reminds us, don't ever forget the promise of resurrection. In him is life beyond our expectations. We know death does not have the final word. What we're taught to believe about ourselves and the world doesn't have the final word. Worldly power doesn't have the final word. Those things are not the truth, even when they appear to be. The final word is this. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write that down for these words are trustworthy and true. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, being the God who stands in solidarity with us in the midst of our grief and our pain. You don't turn to us and tell us to just shut up and be quiet. We don't understand how the world works, but you sit with us. Lord, thank you that you are the God who weeps the God who feels pain, really. And Lord, we also thank you that in the midst of our weeping, in the midst of our grief, that you are there to point us to something unlike anything we ever would have expected. I pray that you would form this community to be a people of solidarity and a people of resurrection. That wherever we go, we would be able to be a weeping people who grieve and who struggle with the world and also be a people of great hope, We trust in you today and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.